the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, true of violence without force This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happier with Cooper Chair and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's discussion and our honored guest, we just want to mention we've got a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing us a dollar a month there, or if not, leave us a nice review on iTunes. To that end, I do want to thank a couple of individuals who have left some recent reviews for us there. Uh, so I'm going to call those people out here. First, we'd like to thank Art Keeper, R. Matson, and then Evil Eye. I think those are the three for this week. So thanks and shout out to all of you. We very much appreciate that. But today, Taylor and I are very proud to bring you this week's guest, Brent Atkins. Brent is professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religion at Roanoke College. His works include Death and Desire in Heidegger, Hegel and Deleuze, True Freedom, Spinoza's Practical Philosophy, Deleuze and Guattari's A Thousand Plateaus, A Critical Introduction and Guide, and A Guide to Ethics and Moral Philosophy. Brent Taylor and I are both very excited to have you on. Very much enjoyed the book, particularly the chapter on Deleuze and Guattari was really great. As you know, we kind of mentioned in the pre-show, I'm sort of new to Deleuze and Guattari's work. And so this was a really great way to kind of make some of those connections. And you broke down some of the concepts so well that it really helped kind of solidify. You know, I'm I'm sort of piecing the puzzle together now. It's it's starting to take shape. There's still some gaps here and there, but I just wanted <laughs> to say that was uh something I really appreciated about about that chapter. But again, thanks again for joining us. We're looking forward to this chat and uh I'll let Taylor take over if he wants to. <laughs> thanks. It's really great to be here. And Coop uh, and and Brent, I apologize. I I screwed up the order. It's Death and Desire and Hegel, Heidegger and Deleuze. I guess it's potato potato, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't really care. <laughs> As long as it I, ends with Deleuze, that's all that matters. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's exactly go. right. I think I got um, I think the order was was messed up in me because Heidegger comes first in the chronologically or not well in terms of the presentation. So I think that's probably gotcha. why I, I screwed up the title. But yes, and you know today we were focusing mainly on that work, which you know I I tweeted out earlier, not transcendental melancholy not <laughs> not dialectical mourning but a, a third secret thing so maybe we can uh towards the end get towards that that third thing which you know you you give some other handy references beyond the lizanguatari to help orient us specifically uh spinoza which i think is very helpful and before we get into all that though we do like to give our guests the chance to sort of introduce themselves to the audience and one of the ways we like to do this is to kind of ask after your origin story if you will can you sort of recount a moment in your life or an anecdote that helps to encapsulate your sort of first encounters with philosophy or that first spark of desire that really consolidated this was something you wanted to pursue and write about and teach 
it's tempting to think your origin story is unique, but I, I think it's probably <laughs> uh, not that unique. Uh, I know uh, Dan Smith and I, for example, share sort of similar origins. So <laughs> I grabbing so, Nietzsche and philosophy off the library shelf or something uh, like this. No, not in that sense. Um, <laughs> in this sense that I uh, went to really uh, conservative Bible college. And my intention was to be a minister and, you know, actually had a small church, uh, you know, on the weekends that I ministered to and pastored for while I was in college. And that was coupled with this sort of feeling of dissatisfaction on a number mm -hmm. of levels, politically, but also philosophically, that we were really just introduced to philosophy in order to uh, say it was bad uh, okay. in some way. And so I thought, oh, I, I'm not sure they're giving a fair <laughs> shake here to right. what's going on in philosophy. But I did have this sort of antagonistic relation to philosophy. I, I thought it was something to be conquered. Mm -hmm. And so while I sort of moved on from that flavor of Christianity in grad school, at least the first place I went to grad school, I was really there to to settle accounts with uh, postmodernism. <laughs> okay, so, okay. Oh, so, so this okay. was all the rage uh, <laughs> in in Bible college, right? This was you know the new the new boogeyman, the new thing that everybody needed to be afraid of. And I said, well, you know what? I'm, <laughs> I'm well trained in classical languages and texts, and I'm going to go to grad school, and I'm going to read Derrida, and I'm going to sort all right. out, and you know, come out on the other side victorious. Oh well. Wow. And then I actually read Derrida, and I thought he was right. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I, I I thought he was brilliant and amazing, and I couldn't understand what all the fear was about in relation to Derrida. And so I wrote my master's thesis on Plato's pharmacy. Awesome. And um, yeah, it's still one of my favorite works of philosophy, really. Derrida was really my first love, right? You know, okay, like the, okay. the first person that I really, really got, you know, I had this sort of broad, uh, superficial understanding of the history of philosophy that I could tell a story about. But Derrida was the first philosopher that I really dug into, and and probably without the help of Rodolphe Gachet's Taint of the Mirror, I wouldn't have made it. But nevertheless, I thought I, I came to a real understanding of what Derrida's project was. And so from there, I thought, well, I want to get my PhD. And, and here it was really dawning on me that, oh, I think I want to keep doing this. I think yeah. I want to teach. I think I want to do research in this kind of thing. And so this is really the point at which I'm distancing myself from theology and moving toward philosophy. And so I went to a PhD program, Loyola Chicago, you know, very steeped in the history of philosophy mm -hmm. and thought, well, you know, maybe the thing to do is to read the people that Derrida was reading, right? To sort of come up from underneath and figure out what his sources are. And so that's why I ended up doing the dissertation on Hegel and Heidegger. And that's what most of my work focused on in grad school and, and what the eventual dissertation was. And then Deleuze was really a late addition there. There was no Deleuze in the dissertation. And, okay. thought, and, you know, having read the book, if you could imagine the book sort of ending after the Hegel section, you know, it doesn't really go anywhere. It just sort of ends with this. With the antinomies. 
Yeah, it ends with an antinomy, although I didn't have that Kantian structure okay, okay. there either. We, we could talk about that, <laughs> yeah. too. That was all invented later when I started reading Deleuze. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'd been exposed to him in grad school, but never really got it. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to get this, the thing to do is to put it on a syllabus and teach it. That's amazing. That I will have to figure it out in order to explain it to students. That's how Anti-Oedipus ended up on a syllabus uh, in a course on Foucault, Derrida, and Deleuze. Once I sort of figured out what I thought was going on, I realized that there might be a sort of resolution to this impasse I'd come to with Hegel and Heidegger. And so then I went back and began revising the dissertation and I added the whole final section on Deleuze and I came to me in a dream, this this whole antinomy thing, like that finally thought, oh, this is how this works. And, you know, here, that wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't studied with the people that I did at Loyola, where Kant was just sort of this central, unavoidable figure. And so everything got mediated through Kant in one way or another. And so that framework came to me and I was able to work things out from there. It makes sense that Kant would be the mediator. He's not only the mediator for Hegel and Heidegger to a large extent, but for Deleuze himself, which sometimes gets forgotten. But you had that helpful footnote, which I had forgotten about this text from uh, Two Regimes of Madness, I believe, about anti-Oedipus as as a kind of critique of pure reason versus a thousand plateaus as this post-Kantian, let's say, doing the concept construction and kind of leaving behind psychoanalysis as a focal point. It's forgotten maybe a little too quickly that Deleuze does even in uh, you know different repetition, you really do need to have that steeping, that foothold in Kant. To that, I noticed you quote you uh, cited groundwork as well, so I think that's one we we need to get on. I've been trying to tell Taylor I need to eat my vegetables and just <sighs> break down and d- and do some Kant. But I wanted to ask you just real quick. This is a bit off topic, but I just was curious what denomination or what faith you were pastoring in during um, grad school, just out of curiosity. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I don't know how, how granular you want to get here. <laughs> I was raised Southern Baptist, just for okay, context, so, if that yeah, helps. I mean, sort of in the same ballpark as that, but the, okay, city, gotcha. the Christian churches, churches of Christ. Okay, gotcha. The yeah, non-denominational. Was, was kind of in that vibe yeah, church, of, church of Christ, yeah. Yeah, non-denominational, although not the full non-instrumental Church of Christ, and yeah, okay. the heretical disciples of Christ. <laughs> okay. Nice. That was a big thing. No instruments in church. That was like, a, you know, Paul said it. So you got to yeah. you got to abide <laughs> right. by it, you know, right. whatever. <laughs> the, <laughs> the despotic regime of Paul, the apostle. Huh? Wow. Yes. I mean, it's, you know, if, if Paul said it, you know, no hats in church, no, uh, no bands, <laughs> no instruments. Uh, it was very it wasn't fundamentalist, but it was very I think the way that the Bible was approached was I appreciated it at the time was kind of historicist. You know, you have a lot of historical background informing the reading, but in the end still felt that the fundamentalism could dominate, right? Because right. it's not all that progressive for historicizing when it should be a little bit more, you know, always historicized, which is again, why I think um, anti-Oedipus is so fundamental to your work on death and desire. But also I appreciated you bringing out the difference between sort of Heidegger's sort of a historical reading of death versus Hegel kind of historicizing. You kind of say, I love this line. You say something like the phenomenology of spirit is a history of consciousness and a concomitant history of death. 
<laughs> that, that's that is great. That's fantastic. Uh, so I guess that we can start maybe there. I mean, I know we're just kind of jumping in the middle. I mean, perhaps I would definitely want to. We could start a little bit with Heidegger, I suppose. And I really appreciated you bringing out Heidegger's, let's call it as you're willing to describe it, his melancholic way of facing death, and you know whether or not we we need to go into the differences between incorporation or interjection or just give kind of a surface reading. It is interesting, this notion of these two models, these two frameworks in which you are able to juxtapose Heidegger and Hegel, but really struck with, I wouldn't say solipsistic, but this individualizing impetus that Heidegger is taking death. But I'll let you kind of maybe say a word or two about the way you're framing Heidegger. I just kind of gave some indications, specifically like the the transcendental role that death plays, any of these things that you might want to sort of give us, you know, you don't have to give us the whole picture, but maybe something that really struck you effectively when you were writing about this. Back to the original project, it did become very clear to me that, and Derrida expresses this very well, that Mm -hmm. both Hegel's and Heidegger's conceptions of death are both too big and too small for the other at the same time. And this is the long-standing debate between system and genesis, right? Mm. That uh, Heidegger provides this sort of systematic, formal view of death, and you could say, well, that that covers every sort of individual instance of death. And then Hegel's saying, well, no, no, structures only arise as a result of a historical process. So right. your, your view of death is this sort of footnote to this much larger history that mm. I'm telling about death, and. At the end, I didn't know how to decide between these two. Like, they both seemed right. And this is Derrida's position, that they are both right. And Mm. so it occurred to me that sort of two things were going on. That, uh, one, the relationship between Hegel and Heidegger on death was structured like a Kantian antinomy. That is, we can give valid arguments for both but end up with contradictory positions, and that the nature of that antinomy mapped on to Freud's distinction between mourning and melancholia, and that uh, mourning is the way in which we sort of reorganize our psychic cathexes in order to detach from a lost (laughs) love object and attach to a new love object, and whereas melancholy is the refusal to detach and reattach, and so one's never done with the lost loved one, and this brings Mm -hmm. up the Abraham and Toric notion of a crypt. And I think this is how Derrida reads this. Both sides are true. And then here I, I get a little into the weeds with Kant, because in Kant, there are two ways you can solve an antinomy. Both sides can be true, and that's how you solve dynamical antinomies. I think that's uh, Derrida's solution. Or both sides can be false, and that's right. how you solve mathematical antinomies. And I think that's Deleuze's approach, or at least that's the way I present it. And so I am finally getting to your question. Sorry. Oh, you're fine. I wanted you to talk about whatever kind of struck your fancy. So please continue. But yeah, so in Heidegger's case, what I think is that we have this uh, very formal, individualized conception of death that one is never done with. Right. Right. One is always sort of constitutionally being towards death 
in Heidegger, and this just struck me as the melancholic position, right? The love object here is the self, and we can never be done. We can never acknowledge the loss of the self. And so we're sort of thrown into this being towards death. And so that's how I see Heidegger's position as yeah, individualistic and melancholic and also a very transcendental, right? That this is a formal claim about the structure of human existence and right. for the possibility of any sort of ontic expression to bust out a little Heidegger vocabulary. <laughs> and it's highly narcissistic too, which I think is also kind of Freud's point. And that point of like the melancholic is complaining about them not having any worth. They are, you know, they deserve all this punishment when in fact there's an identification going on and the persons around whom the melancholic is is complaining about themselves. It's actually indirectly about some some other uh some the other the person with whom they're surrounding themselves, right? So this this interesting, you know, projection by way of you're redirecting towards yourself, but you're actually since you've incorporated that identification, you're sort of bemoaning the other in this clandestine way. A mourning that can't acknowledge itself as such. And so it's Great. two things happen, I think Freud says. Uh, one, the subject becomes very focused. And, you know, as Abraham and Torek would say, the real focus is on this lost object that's been incorporated. And they become very talkative, right? There's this... <laughs> yeah. Uh, continual sort of reference to worthlessness or pain or suffering or something like that. But what can't be acknowledged in all of that conversation, in fact, ends up being a smokescreen, is the loss that can't be acknowledged. That's the form of the the crypt that has to be kind of pushed off as we approach it. It's sort right. of like the limits of capitalism, right, for Deleuze right. and Guattari. I found that very interesting. You know, on the one hand, Heidegger's sort of move and 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 I really like the way you cut to the the core of it it being about this you know distinction between fear fearing in the world fearing for sort of a loss but really that being narcissistic versus anxiety which is again this confrontation with nothingness and you know I I like that you um I did some some digging through the footnotes I like that you brought up Levinas essay on the there is right because even sort of within the you know prior to the nothingness or something like this there's always the there is threatening i appreciated that i think at the end of the day i, I came away very unhappy with heidegger and you know there are lots of reasons to be unhappy with heidegger but uh you know this kind of narcissism that i think pervades being in time you know yeah. We could talk about other texts and whether he uh, <laughs> that uh, in later texts or not. But in being in time, at least, you know, I think the exclusion of neat sign, the exclusion of being with others, you know, at this very crucial defining moment really tells you all you need to know about Heidegger on death. Yeah, I agree with that. That's why, you know, it's so important for Levinas to say straight away, it's it's a being for others and kind of really make up for all this lost ground in being in time. Yeah. And in any case, I do think that there are many reasons to 
dislike Heidegger. My leaving aside politics or whatever, because that's obviously its own huge bag of can of worms. But I mean, it's some of it's the language, some of it's the kind of there's even kind of narcissism in the jargon, which maybe every philosophy kind of has. We could even say for Hegel, too. But there is a just an emphatic like some of the texts which get into you know, revealing the meaning of being through etymology. I love etymology. I'm kind of, I'm a sucker for it, but there's a way in which it, it gets to the point of feeling masturbatory. I don't know. That's just me, though. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. There's such a fine line. I'm also very drawn to etymology. And boy, it's just so tempting to step over the line a little bit and find something there that you need uh, to mm -hmm. make your point uh, that's not really there. Just to contrast, and we can move on, you know, just to contrast between, for example, the way that maybe Derrida or even Lacan might play on the surface and there be some enjoyment, some pleasure in the punning, in the etymology, in the wordplay. Whereas Heidegger is really trying to do this excavation that starts to feel like a, I don't want to say a charade, but really does start to feel like, is that going to be an essential aspect of philosophy? Is there not something that's should it be taken that seriously as an exercise that can have a self-sufficiency in that sort of digging? I think Heidegger would have done himself a huge favor if he would acknowledge that he wasn't sort of uncovering concepts, but inventing them. Yeah, that's a great point. Suddenly, many of these problems go away. You know, well, what if we thought about things like this? Uh, what concepts might we be able to create? How might we be able to live in relation to that? That seems like a much uh, healthier relation to the past than the one Heidegger presents. I totally agree with that. And that gets us back to this, to move from Heidegger to Hegel, although we can refer back to him. I'm wanting you to make sure that I'm kind of on the right path with the, this notion of your argument surrounding Heidegger. And you kind of make it that instead of, what is it? Instead of Heidegger kind of arguing that care and the care structure, the care system grounds death. You're kind of saying, in my reading, and you know, with the sort of framework that I'm bringing, death is the sort of transcendental ground in terms of what the sort of futural projective nature of Dasein, and so it's death that plays the the structuring ground rather than the other way around. Whereas in Heidegger, it might be that death is just kind of a consequence of our of our care with with concern to things equipment and other other design is that i'm not sure what to say there i think what i'd want to say is that and you know we could be very you know precise and rigorous here right that the concern in heidegger isn't death as such it's being towards death there's probably some slippage in my book around that point but it is the being towards death that just is the care structure okay. in being in time. You know, what Husserl would call intentionality, right? Mm -hmm. this, this openness, this being stretched ahead of oneself, the conditions for the possibility of that, and thus Dasein's ontic experience is the fact that Dasein is a finite entity that is always heading towards its own death. That is what wraps up the notion or that's what consolidates your argument for Heidegger's sort of emphasis being on melancholy, right? There is yeah. this, there is this loss that has to be incorporated 
That's my loss. That individualizes my innermost being toward death. And it becomes sort of, as you point out, just to anticipate towards Hegel, it sort of cuts off how, even if this may or may not be true, that obviously death is always sort of my own. There seems to be a way in which Heidegger downplays or even denies the communal aspect of of death. There's something almost like highly modern about this, where it is almost, I don't want to say heroic or anti-heroic, but there is this, we said narcissistic, there is this way in which death is sort of cut out from the community, whereas that's not the case for, for Hegel and the phenomenology. Right. Yeah. You know, and this, I think this is an objection that can be raised against lots of different forms of phenomenology, that it is this really isolating attempt to capture this snapshot of a relation between a consciousness and its environment or the objects of its intentions or or something like that. And this is sort of outside the scope of the book that we're talking about. But I find I find that sort of philosophically very unsatisfying that if I start from that standpoint, you know, that's my primary source of analysis. I'm going to find it very difficult to get back out of that. And something like community can only seem as an adjunct in relation to that if I establish that as the ground. And I think in being in time, Heidegger has a really extreme form of that. He would say he wasn't talking about consciousness fine. He's talking about Dasein. But that what he isolates in that is this individualized structure with this sort of lack, this nothing at its heart. I think can only be melancholic and as a result, narcissistic. And, you know, what's interesting too, when I was reading the sections on Heidegger and this tension between being with community and that sort of being excised in Heidegger, it reminded me of various strains of Christianity that emphasize how salvation is not an individual affair, that it is kind of an affair of, whether it be of, of all mankind or of, of a communal affair, to think of salvation as an individual project is to sort of misunderstand a fundamental aspect. I didn't know if you had any, I'm not asking you to theologize, but perhaps you might have some resonance with that. I think that's the Protestant inheritance, right? I Mm -hmm. think whether Luther meant it this way or not, this has been the primary outcome theologically of the Protestant Reformation, that you shift away from a life of a community and the salvation of a community, namely the church, Mm -hmm. uh, toward salvation as a matter of an individual's relation to God, right? And a direct, unmediated relation to God. And it's not like there's no support for that in the New Testament. You can find passages that will support that, but this was a, a new and very modern take on what had prior been a very communal look at salvation and the, the nature of religious life. That's really interesting. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I may actually be skipping ahead a little bit, but I just the first thing that came to mind was this model of like the Egyptian pharaoh as this communal, that's a sort of communal salvation. And I just want to flag that really briefly because like once we do get closer to the end of the book, I think there's something interesting with regard to I think these practices of the Egyptians and the body without organs that I like to maybe discuss. So I just wanted to throw that out there really quickly, but please go okay. ahead, Taylor. Yeah, I'm 
I'll, I'll be interested <laughs> to hear what you have to say because I don't know anything about that. <laughs> we definitely want to talk about the the despotic regime or you know the Ur state, the question of overcoding and, and all that. We can we can definitely bring that up. But really quickly, just to set up morning, because obviously we do want to get to Deleuze and Guattari, and that's uh that's definitely one one of the things that we're most fascinated in. But I was trying to set up this transition to the sort of you know, the way in which death develops throughout the phenomenology and culminates perhaps in revealed religion. We can economize a little bit. We don't necessarily have to go each step of the way in the phenomenology. That would be its own episode, I suppose, or several. It is interesting how you point out the road that death travels from being a sort of natural occurrence, if you will, through the the sort of ethical tension, if you will, of the the state and the family, then up through the terror revolution to this higher stage at the threshold, if you will, of absolute knowing or absolute spirit of revealed religion. And I think I was perhaps trying to prepare us for that road that Hegel takes us along the way, wherein each step is increasingly bound up with the community and the way in which the community mediates death and interjects death, as you kind of pointed out. Do you perhaps want to, I guess, set up how this is maybe a process of complexification of mourning? Um, right. So, you know, just to briefly uh, talk about mourning for Freud, mourning is a successful detachment from a lost object and reattachment to a new object, which of course may be lost, you know, at a future time, which will, you know, re-necessitate this uh, task of mourning. And I think that nicely maps on to what Hegel's doing, because as you say, this is a process that converts uh, what he calls natural negation into spiritual negation. So, you know, natural negation would just be sort of annihilation, absence, mm -hmm. right? And this is this is why death is the absolute lord and master in the phenomenology because it represents this annihilation, right? This death that one cannot come back from. And so, one way you could read the phenomenology is by asking, okay, well, what happens with death? How does the life of the spirits or how does the community deal with this sort of absolute limit of its powers? And Hegel's argument is, well, it does this by slowly learning to incorporate it. And, you know, you, you could see this very straightforwardly in an anthropological sense, right? Mm -hmm. How did humans deal with death? Well, they invented rituals. They invented right burials, you know, there are taboos and boundaries around death. And there's a way to sort of come to terms with the death of a member of the community. And you see these gets sort of intellectualized and idealized in Hegel's phenomenology. But where this culminates for Hegel is in the notion of revealed religion, which not coincidentally is the Protestant Christianity we were just talking about. Right, right. And so Hegel says two things there. He says, well, it's actually the Eucharist, mm -hmm. right? It's the communion uh, mm -hmm. which acknowledges and celebrates death, mm -hmm. but also overcomes death at the same time. And this is this Hegel's second Ooh. point, right? He says that revealed religion and philosophy have the same content, 
only their form differs, right? Interesting. So both philosophy and revealed religion are dealing with the same thing. Well, what is that thing that they're dealing with? I think Hegel would say, well, it's negation. You know, the thing acknowledged since Heraclitus, that things are <laughs> changing, has finally been actualized in the world in this notion of the Eucharist, mm. right? This idea that change can be acknowledged, it doesn't have to be warded off, and that change can actually be incorporated into the life of a community. The only thing that's different in philosophy from that is philosophy acknowledges that this is a conceptual process that's going on here, right? That, you know, it was helpful and necessary that it be concretized, you know, in the story of the death and resurrection of Christ and celebrated in the Eucharist afterwards. But really, this is a conceptual claim about the nature of knowledge and how spirit becomes conscious of itself uh, mm -hmm. in history. You formulate this in an interesting way as in each stage from, as you put it, natural negation to the sort of struggle for recognition, Lord and, and servant, which I, I really like how you, you brought out nicely. And I can't help but think of Lacan, this notion where the struggle for recognition is about a recognition of being independent from nature. And whereas the master is willing to risk death or risk his life, the servant acquiesces and is not willing to risk. But insofar as that happens, the servant is working in the field of knowledge or whatnot. It works away and is producing and sort of thereby becoming independent from nature by working on it, whereas the master merely enjoys that production from afar. And so in a certain sense, there's a shift where the master no longer is independent from the servant. And so there's a kind of dialectical shift of where, even if death remains absolute master, there is a shift in terms of where mastery sort of goes to, to a certain extent to the slave, right? This is just sort of the, I couldn't help but think of Lacan and, and whatnot, right? The master is enjoying, but the slave is producing right. to a certain extent. You know, Hegel says that the essence or truth of the master is found in the servant, and the essence or truth of the servant is found in the master. And so, you know, it's sort of uh, the picky Hegel scholar in me, right, that uh, <laughs> really dislike the Kojevian reading here where the slave wins, right? And right from there, when in fact Hegel's saying, well, no, we're, we're left with this contradictory position where right. each one is the truth of the other, and that's what we posit. That becomes Stoicism, mm. uh, Hegel, where uh, it doesn't matter what your position is in the world. You could be Epictetus, a slave, or you could be Marcus Aurelius, emperor of the world. That's good. Uh, and you would still have this same relation to nature. Exactly, because you're a, you're a citizen of the cosmos, mm -hmm. the Stoic, to a certain extent. And this is why, I, you know, it's in... Um, I really like this, too, that you bring this out because Simon Don, in his history of the notion of the individual, he brings out how the Stoics seemingly have this kind of progressive philosophy. But in fact, they their philosophy is appropriated very quickly by these various emperors because it's about founding an empire, no matter where your allegiances may lie to the city. So there's a sense in which it is used for these reactionary ends that mm -hmm. actually don't culminate in a certain freedom. Yeah, or, you know, uh, freedom for the Stoic is knowing your place in the universe, which, you know, great if you're Aurelius, 
and you know maybe comforting if you're Epictetus, but it does maintain the status quo above all else. Right. And you bringing out Kojev, you know, it just that helps to remind me too that that's sort of the bulk of what Lacan is being influenced by when Hegel is in question because of those famous lectures. I mean, he he wasn't the only one. Let's be fair. No. <laughs> No, um, I think, uh, you know, our bailiwick, French post-structuralism is actually, you know, shot through mm -hmm. this uh, Kojevian reading of Hegel. And I wonder to what degree Hegel is only the bad guy in as much as they take Kojev's reading of Hegel and not Hegel as such. Do you think that's partly the case becomes interesting when it comes to Hegel being the bad guy with someone like Deleuze, right? Insofar as Hippolyte also kind of influenced him. Do you think there's a there's something more to be gained from, say, Hippolyte's Structure in Genesis book, which you cite fairly, fairly well, I would say. It's interesting that there is a, a move to a kind of structuralist Hegel that maybe prepares the way for Deleuze to take up the question of anti-Hegelianism, as, as we might call it, roughly speaking. Yeah, so I'll just sort of riff for a moment. Yeah, riff, please. On, on this idea. So I think where Kojev was so important, not only for French philosophy, but also for Ipoli, is this anthropological reading of Hegel. Okay. Right, that Hegel is a story about human knowledge and not a story about God's self-knowledge, right? So okay. It's not the end of the metaphysics where thought is thinking itself in some divine sense. That's just what human communities do. And so this, you know, opens a space for um, a very sort of existential kind of Hegel. And, you know, Sartre makes great use and really only use of Kojev <laughs> in his work on that basis. And so Hippolyte comes along. And he is, uh, of course, familiar with Kojev, but I think he's a much more careful scholar mm -hmm. of Hegel than Kojev was. And uh, he's also buddies with John Ball. And it's John Ball who notes the importance of the unhappy consciousness Interesting. Uh, in the phenomenology, which, you know, again, gives you a very sort of existential kind of Hegel that you can work with. And I don't think that Deleuze is reacting against those strains of okay. Hegelianism yeah. in France. I think he incorporates those strains mm -hmm. of Hegelianism in France. Where his objection to Hegel lies is a metaphysical objection. What does Hegel think is uh, really real about the world? And I think Deleuze thinks. And, you know, we, we could dispute whether this is the case or not. But I think that Deleuze thinks that, well, what Hegel thinks is really real about the world is this all-encompassing spirit. And what, what's so objectionable about that to Deleuze is the teleology, uh, that yep. spirit's progress is a necessary progress, that the achievement of absolute knowledge is unavoidable. And I, I take Deleuze's project, you know, especially in something like Anti-Oedipus, uh, mm -hmm. to show that, yes, of course, there are totalities, but totalities never totalize. In fact, totalities are always a residuum of yep. some prior non-totalizable process. 
And the problem with philosophy is that we've always zeroed in on the totalities as if they were it, when in fact, something else and something much more interesting is actually going on. You're exactly right to emphasize the residuum, you know, which is pretty much how they define the subject. They're always emphasizing this alongside, even when they talk about totalities and anti-Oedipus, they're talking about it as a if it is a totality, it's alongside the parts. It's not totalizing the parts, right? So there is this, the ancillary or alongside aspect of something like the subject out of the conjunctive synthesis, you know, drawing upon, you know, Nietzsche and the eternal return, all these different references they bring out to show that this is one of those key paralogisms, if you will, of the unconscious of thinking of the subject as unitary, as somehow centered, even if... um you know, Freud helped to begin that decentering. There's still something that gets recentered with a figure like Oedipus. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I recently wrote an article on anti Oedipus on this very point that there's a way in which you can read anti Oedipus as Deleuze and Guattari trying to save Freud from himself. Yeah. That he comes across, uh, you know, this brilliant discovery of the unconscious and simply does not have the courage of his convictions and resorts to this uh, mania for unity and tries to uh, tame that in the theater of representation. We've discussed this where part of the, you know, they have this interesting line. I'm, 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 I'm not exactly sure where it comes up, but they, it may be in chapter two, because that's the kind of chief psychoanalysis chapter in Antiedipus, but they, they kind of make this point where we want to maintain the sort of exploratory Freud, the discoverer, the one who is like of the three essays, who is willing to shake up the status quo Victorian sensibility or who's venturing these hypotheses, like in the uh, the scientific postscript or whatever, you know, they, they're looking for keeping that Freud. It's the it's the Freud who's like Al Capone trying to set up the racket of psychoanalysis and to and to kind of codify it. And the the Freud who is himself involved in these Oedipal embroglios of, you know, Jung and Adler and Frank, who are all these unruly children, if you will, that kind of grandfatherly Al Capone Freud, who's trying to set up psychoanalysis as a racket. That's what we need to dismantle. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Free desiring production, uh, <laughs> conscious, let it do what it wants to do. Don't assume that it's always going to travel down these preordained paths. It's the notion of Oedipus is, as a universal that gets him into trouble, kind of like in the same way as Heidegger might universalize being towards death and a contextualize it, a historicize it. There's something similar going on, perhaps with Oedipus as this transcendental universal structure. Yep. When in, in fact, if we historicize as they do, they try to bring up how Oedipus could have come about. From Deleuze's perspective, Heidegger and Freud are at their worst to the degree that they're Kantians, in the sense that they're trying to set up this transcendental ahistorical structure. Gotcha. Uh, and that that's, and not that Deleuze is always free of this. Uh, <laughs> this is my, my constant battle with other Deleuze scholars is trying to free Deleuze from the transcendental. I just think. At the end of the day, it's not in line with sort of the best trajectory in Deleuze's thought. Even all of this stuff in difference and repetition that absolutely depends on it. 
I think the better Deleuze is the Deleuze who speaks about intensities rather than transcendental structures. It's more the Spinoza's Deleuze than perhaps. Yes, yes. The excellent. The Deleuze who hunts down transcendence at every opportunity. Yes, the one who looks most like Spinoza. Now, that's an interesting thing, just to tarry with this, like tearing with the negative, because right. even if I want to move on from Hegel, I know that that's perhaps impossible, no, you know, exactly. to a certain extent. <laughs> I will just say, because, and, and again, this is just, as you mentioned earlier, this is riffing. This is, this is just a conversation after the conference, right? We're having a beer. So I'm curious about this. If the transcendental is meant to make, to rule out and ward off the illegitimate transcendent uses whether it be of the syntheses, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's supposed to ward off transcendence. Would not the transcendental help in this hunting down that you're describing? Or do you think that that it doesn't go far enough or something like this? I always worry with the transcendental that it very easily becomes the transcendent. Oh, that's good. Sure, I can say, okay, so I'm faced with this transcendent illusion this fog that's surrounding my concepts, and I want to try and eliminate those as much as I can. And so what do I do? Well, I make the transcendental move and I say, okay, well, what are the conditions for the possibility of this? And it's at that point that I have to be most careful because when I begin to outline those conditions for the possibility, I will be very tempted to identify some ahistorical structure Right. Makes these, you know, particular conditions possible. And that can so easily slide into just another transcendent structure Mm -hmm. that we're trying to eliminate in the first place. And, you know, and this may very well be Deleuze's point that, yeah, no, that's how thought works. And that's why you have to be continually on guard. You can't do without the transcendental, but there's always this danger that it will slide into the transcendent. And there's a danger in which it'll ossify, reify into an image of thought, right? right? Yep. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And that actually sounds very close to some moves, some gestures that Laura Well makes in mm-hmm. terms of worrying that non-philosophy could ossify if the practice of it is not continually reaffected, that the terms elaborated in the reworking could then rest upon their laurels. and you know, sort of settle, if you will, into this image of thought. So that's that's actually very, very clear. Yeah. And perhaps, oh, go ahead, Coop. I was just going to say, I wanted to let you finish, but I was just going to say, even Sterner, I think, is, you know, mm-hmm. he's definitely going in on these transcend- transcendent spooks, you know, right? Like, that's definitely part of that critique as well. That's all I want to interject really briefly. Well, yeah, I mean, I would say that that perhaps, you know, spook is, is perhaps a kind of residue of transcendence or an image of thought or residue of the image of thought. Yeah. It's a, you know, and I I guess the last thing I was going to say on this point was basically that perhaps Deleuze's, I don't want to call it contradictory, but counterintuitive yoking together of the notion of transcendental empiricism is meant for us to, if we're going to keep the transcendental in some form, it can't be in its old classical critical notion. Perhaps it has to be ever recreated. I think that's the, and again, I'm I'm absolutely a minority here. I, I, no. I really hammered at a conference one time. I, I presented a paper called To Have Done with the Transcendental. I saw um, that, yep. It was not well liked. But anyway, you know, sort of with those caveats in mind, 
I guess I just wonder if the very notion of transcendental empiricism is wrongheaded from the get-go. Oh, okay, great. Here's a couple of thoughts on why that might be. First, he's clearly drawing on Bergson here. Okay. But interestingly, when Bergson discusses empiricism, he does not use the term transcendental empiricism. He talks about a higher empiricism. This recognition that there are conditions that uh, condition experience that aren't immediately perceptible. And so in order to not have a sort of naive Humean empiricism or naive realism, we need to recognize that uh, there's this additional thing going on here, right? And that's the virtual actual distinction. Bergson, which also gets taken up by Deleuze. And, you know, I think that's his way of describing what's going on here. But I can't shake this lingering concern that you'll end up with structures of possibility. Yes, that's true. Rather than potentialities. Mm -hmm. And as you say, that these structures of possibility themselves will, will simply be images of thought. Right. And the other thing that gives me pause here is that I know Deleuze can do philosophy without the transcendental, Mm -hmm. right? I think there are no positive mentions of the transcendental in a thousand plateaus. I think you're right, yeah. And so it's very clear he's doing similar work there, but he's doing it without uh, recourse to the transcendental. Mm -hmm. Well, so how is that working? Is he not talking about conditions? Well, no, of course he's talking about conditions. But how is he talking about them? Well, he's talking about them in terms of intensity Mm -hmm. and intensity's relation to extensity. And to me, this is a much more straightforward, less fraught way of getting at what Bergson already recognizes Mm -hmm. that, you know, there's more going on here than a naive realism, but that. Whatever that more is, shouldn't be thought of as this this transcendental structure. It shouldn't be thought of as conditions for possibility. So anyway, that's my little hobby horse that no No, one is beyond, but that's where I am with the transcendental. This is the perfect forum for you to to air those grievances. And, (laughs) you know, we are, that's something that I find it fruitful to to think about because I'm not going to be dogmatic about whether or not to keep it. You know, I've always thought of transcendental empiricism as a kind of almost tongue in cheek Mm -hmm. uh, framing. And as situating, for example, difference of repetition, the conflict of the faculties, their discord and accord, et cetera, as a way of describing that type of move. But I don't necessarily think of it as something that Deleuze would call himself or, or necessarily ascribe himself to. It's, it's one of the, the moves in the conceptual toolbox of reformulating the history of philosophy, perhaps. There is absolutely a way to read Deleuze uh, consistently and beautifully with the transcendental intact, you know, and this sort of gets into uh, a sociology of Deleuze scholars, right? Uh, Right. Everybody has their sort of or text. And I think for those for whom it's difference in repetition, they're just not going to give up the transcendental (laughs) and transcendental empiricism. And for me, it's... It's Antiedipus and Thousand Plateaus, where the transcendental does not play a role at all, or a very minimal role. And to me, that's the more creative, experimental, praxis-oriented Deleuze 
that I'm interested in. So yeah, that those are my urtex. And so then I have this problem, like, you know, well, what do you do with the transdental? Like, well, why don't we just get rid of it? Like, yeah. Is it really doing anything? Is it helping us? It doesn't look like it's helping us, but I understand why you might be attached to it. I'm willing to go down that road with you. I I, I find it, I mean, I'm thinking of what is philosophy as well, where concept right. creation isn't predicated on the transcendental. And in fact, as you kind of point out, it could, in a certain sense, could limit and inhibit concept creation. So, you know, with the changing of problems, that should be fundamental. Problems should be be posing the the conditions rather than some sort of, and it's interesting too, because in logic of sense, you know, the transcendental for him takes on the role of, this is where he turns to Simon Don in terms of pre-individual singularities, the milieu, the field of forces, it becomes a transcendental field. And so it takes on a kind of a totally different look, even if it still retains the title. If we start thinking in terms of a transcendental field, we're not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily look the same as a kind of critical Kantian introduction of the transcendental. So even there, it's got a totally different tinge. Absolutely agreed. Uh, you know, interesting history about the transcendental field, right? That's uh, Sartre criticizing Husserl, mm -hmm. who's criticizing Kant. And my sort of retort to the acknowledgement of the transcendental field is in his last essay, Eminence of Life, I think the argument there is like the essay starts with what is a transcendental field, like really weird way to start an essay. <laughs> but anyway, the argument is, as I read it, the transcendental field just is eminence. Yeah. And, and so, you know, in my defense, that looks like, again, a doing away with the transcendental, like, well, we don't really need to talk about transcendental fields. We can talk about eminence. And, yes. Agreed. You know, all of the all of the things he says about eminence are things that you can say about pre-individual singularities, are things you can say about intensities, right? You have the famous example from the Dickens story or mutual friend, you know, it's a life that they're trying to right. say. He talks about, you know, sort of a smile going across a baby's face, right? There's no subject there, but there's singularity there. I'm super happy and those are some of the best parts of Deleuze that he's talking about those. And if that's what he means by transcendental, okay, great. I'm all for it. But then that doesn't sound like the way I usually think about the word transcendental. And of so course, yeah. It's getting in the way. It, I think it is. <laughs> we would be better off talking about yeah. eminence or intensity or something like that. You've convinced me. I, I'm gonna. <laughs> I definitely think you're onto something there, and I agree with I you like that you. that uh, as I said, with problems, when problems change, and we have these these encounters that forces thinking. We don't necessarily have to rely on these old concepts. And one thing that I was thinking of, and you're, you'll probably laugh at this. One of the terms that Laurel coins in non-standard philosophy is this notion of the imminental, mm -hmm. which is a monstrous yoking together of eminence and the transcendental but eminence wins out if you will in that in that titular notion so we took an excursus but i feel like the ride was worth it so i appreciate you as i said airing your grievances and uh, this is the perfect venue for that but i guess before moving on from hegel i wanted to point out one phrasing that i really appreciated out of this where the development of death in the phenomenology and the, and the ruminations on it, you talk about this question of an efficiency of mourning. And I really kind of appreciated that way of phrasing it, that 
it's like there is this increase, this uptake, this streamlining of mourning as we sort of ascend the spirals of spirit or something like this coming to know itself. Yeah, right. I mean, that would be another way of talking about natural negation versus spiritual negation, Mm -hmm. right? In a natural negation, everything is lost. There's no return. But precisely what a spiritual negation is, is a determinate negation, one in which becomes increasingly efficient, right? There's less loss every time. And so it becomes increasingly economical until you have this sort of miraculous, lossless economy in which there's no friction. Yeah. It's, uh, death Death isn't really a, a loss anymore, right? It's fully incorporated into the life of the community. Yeah, you said something towards the end of the, the Hegel chapters about there is this sense in which the movement of the development of spirit it, with respect to, to death and mourning is, you kind of call it frictionless. There's no real entropy. The only thing that may be there is a kind of inertia, but that's a part of sort of self, the self-overcoming, if you will. I think spirit's a perpetual motion machine. Mm. <laughs> um, and and that's what separates it from nature, or that's what allows it to incorporate nature. Of course, there's uh, you know thermodynamics, there's uh, entropy in nature, mm-hmm. and so, and, and death being the most extreme example. And so, you know, what do we do? We just sort of throw up our hands and say, "Oh well, that's the way it goes." Or do we try and find a way to make death work for us? That's the process of the phenomenology in relation to death, but also just negation in general. And I, I really like the, in the Hegel sections, I kept thinking about John Donne's holy sonnet, you know, death be not proud, though some have called it the mighty and dreadful, thou art not so, right? This notion of death dying, right? Of this this mm-hmm. overcoming of death. But that kind of gives us back to the the Protestant aspect of, uh, of Hegel's uh, worldview. And in any case, it sets us up for now we're at this crossroads. And as you mentioned, I wouldn't have known this, but it's interesting to think that the dissertation would have stopped. I know you said you didn't frame it as an antinomy, but it would have stopped with this undecidable aspect of Heidegger and this sort of intense individual anxiety being toward death, this melancholy of incorporating lack versus Hegel of this communal, you know, life of the spirit confronting death in this work of mourning. And we're sort of left with an undecidable because, as you point out, where Heidegger excels, you point out along the way in Heidegger that the best parts of Heidegger is when he's talking about equipment. And I tend to agree with that. But at the end, you know, it's Heidegger is able to isolate the individual's, you know, relation to death, right? The, the mindness, the, the mindekite or whatnot, whereas Hegel doesn't necessarily make room for that or, or, or elaborate on that. Whereas it's the communal aspect that obviously gets jettisoned and that's where Hegel shines. And so there's, you know, we are left with this antinomy of a kind of communal versus individual way of, of dealing with death and its role. And so this is perhaps where, as you point out, I think very in a very interesting way that this antinomy can be solved, but it should be solved in the negative in terms of the role that desire plays. Because if desire in Hegel and Heidegger is about acquisition or is about predication on a lack, what does death look like once we formulate desire as affirmative or productive? And I think that perhaps sets up 
for Deleuze to come in and sort of maybe not mediate, but what's a good word for it? To give us the beginnings for solving this antinomy. I'm trying to think what my original conclusion looked like. I think the original version without Deleuze, I actually started with Epicurus, I cannot meet my own death, and you know showed how, well, no, no, of course you can. Here's Hegel and Heidegger to show you how. <laughs> they just have two different ways of doing it. You know, mm -hmm. you meet it as an individual or you meet it as a community. Right. And then my recollection is that even at that stage in the conclusion, I just cut the yeah. horns of the dilemma and just grasped Hegel and said, this is obviously a better view of death than Heidegger has. And, you know, Heidegger's view is, you know, a footnote to to Hegel's view or something like that, right? Yeah, so yeah. I did the one thing you're not supposed to do with an antinomy, which is choose one side. <laughs> uh, but I wasn't thinking in those terms then. But yeah, the ultimate uh, way in which I get to Deleuze is I recognize that it's not so much the view of death that Hegel and Heidegger get wrong. It's their view of desire. And they both have the same view of desire. They just take that into opposed ways. And so if you insert this new conception of desire, you recognize that neither of these views of death is adequate to the concept or adequate to the experience that we have. And then so that led me, I didn't know where it was going to end up. I was sort of I came up with this idea and I was working through Antiedipus, hoping that I would end up somewhere. And as fate or serendipity would have it, I stumbled on this notion of the two deaths in Antiedipus that they're getting from Blanchot. And so that allowed me to sort of give Deleuze's uh, productive account of desire and then show how you get a new conception or you get two conceptions of death out of this. And that sort of wrap things up for me. That's wonderful. Obviously, the role of serendipity, it's nice to hear something like that showing up. And it's kind of like you said, uh, the antinomy idea came to you in a dream. It, that's just as serendipitous to a certain extent, right? Absolutely. Um, I'm a big believer in writing first and thinking second, right? Don't think to write, write to think. Yeah. And so, you know, I... I start out and I sort of make all sorts of crazy promises and claims and I start writing about them and sometimes it pays off and many times it doesn't. And that's just the way it goes. That's how uh, creation works. I mean, that's kind of how Deleuze talks about writing in a different repetition. I think in the preface, right, he kind of says like, how can we write except on the sort of limits of our knowledge, right? You know, there's there's no other way. Yeah, I think there's... Um, there's a text by Kleist that Deleuze refers to called On the Gradual Production of Ideas Through Talking. Huh. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's a very short essay, and I, I think Kleist published it in a, a newspaper or something like that, or one huh. of the small journal. But the basic idea is we don't think first and then talk. We just start talking, and that generates ideas. And they sort of tumble out on top of one another so that if you don't know what to say or you don't know what to think, the solution is not to cloister yourself and think really hard. The solution is just talk to somebody and force yourself to produce new ideas. 
That's wonderful. Um, and so, yeah, I, I find that a very advantageous way to think about kind of scholarly work that I do. And that gives a whole new sort of meaning to what we're doing here, right? Yeah. Just uh, <laughs> yeah. exactly. coming, coming at it, you know, at an angle. And I guess a few few reactions, I would say, first, Nietzsche has a very similar type of thing where it's like, I don't force an idea to come. An idea comes when it wants, right? It's So there's a whole cause and effect thing there. I was also thinking that the title you mentioned of Kleist's little essay could, it sounds like an essay that Freud would have written, right? About mm -hmm. the talking cure. And specifically, I was thinking that if we had to choose... And you may not have had melancholy on Heidegger's side and mourning on Hegel's side when you wrote the dissertation. I'm not sure if that came later as well, but no, that was all later. All the Freud, um, all the Kant, that was all later. I think Freud would have said it's best to choose mourning. If we have to choose between mourning and melancholia, oh yeah, we should choose mourning every time. No, uh, melancholy is pathological for Freud. Right. No question. <laughs> ooh, as some as a melancholic, ooh, yeah, <laughs> just. I'm not going to disparage uh, pathology and whatnot, but I do think that in terms of Freud, he would rather deal with a patient in mourning than a melancholic, I think, right? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, mourning is not neurotic for Freud. Yes. Right? Mourning does not require analysis. Mm -hmm. It's only when something goes wrong with the process of mourning uh, and it turns into melancholia, then someone needs analysis to uh, sort of help them out of this loop that they're in, where they both must and cannot acknowledge a loss at the same time, and all the sort of obstacles that they put up for themselves and all the symptoms that arise from uh, disavowing the loss in the first place. That's what would require analysis for Freud. You have the great quote of Freud's in chapter three at the header, as the epigraph for the Lieutenant of Nothing chapter, where you, Freud says the narcissistic disorders, dementia, precox, paranoia, melancholia, are characterized by withdrawal of the libido from objects, and they are therefore scarcely accessible to analytic therapy. So yeah. it's a question if Freud would even treat a melancholic, right? Like, like I was, I talked to Coop, I guess a year and a half ago when we were doing the Schraber case. I was like, it's very uh, convenient that Freud's doing a case study of Schraber's memoirs because mm -hmm. I don't think he would have taken Schraber on as a patient, right? If dementia and uh, melancholia are scarcely accessible to analysis, none of the psychoses are, right? Right, right. That's sort of the fundamental split that prompts the writing of Anti-Oedipus in the first place. And also Guattari's clinical work, right? That's yeah. one of the few places, Laborde was one of the few places that would actively take on people with psychoses, whereas normally they would just simply be institutionalized. And right. There would be no attempt at any kind of therapy. This is a really good point that you bring up because, you know, it is sometimes forgotten that perhaps that's part of the genesis of the notion of schizoanalysis, first mm -hmm. of all, is the attempt, whether or not it succeeds, Laborde has its own history, that's its own thing, but the notion of dealing, and I know that Guattari learned some of this from Lacan, but but took it a step further, I think, at Laborde, like you're pointing out. and. The only thing you can really fault it on, again, not talking about success or failures here, but there can seem in Antiedipus, despite the warnings, that I think the the general layperson's reading, that the thing that they got sort of attacked for, which again, they put plenty of warnings in, but you you know how things go. 
right. is a kind of romanticization of the schizophrenic, which again, they're very clear in the text, but I can see how that would be a takeaway that there's a romanticization of the schizophrenic as, as a revolutionary blah, blah, blah. Right. And perhaps that is part of the shift in the second volume. Also the shift to a little bit more caution. I think that they seem a little bit, not in their experimentation or their, or their writing perhaps, but they do seem to come up with a little bit more cautionary warnings, you know, don't destratify too quickly, yada, yada. Also, the fact that Latonomia in Italy was using anti-Oedipus as a manual to start blowing things up and, you know, people getting arrested, uh, Negri among them. From the fallout of this, anti-Oedipus was their Bible. And so they saw this and I think horrified would be too strong, but they recognized that, oh, people are taking this seriously. Uh, so why don't we uh, counsel a little more prudence in a thousand plateaus. Before we talk a little bit about Deleuze, and, and I, I suppose this could be a wrapping up, I, I'm sorry for talking too much about the big two H's, but I did want to suggest one thing that I thought was fascinating in one of your footnotes where you talk about the shift from anti-Oedipus to a thousand plateaus. I mentioned the the quotes you pull up from Two Regimes of Madness, which I that was very helpful. I thought it was interesting, your statement about death seeming to be less prevalent in a thousand plateaus which made me think and look back and i think that in terms of the role of the model of death and the experience of death in chapter four of anti-oedipus you're definitely right but i was it was really interesting to see the context in which it does come up obviously in micropolitics the micropolitics plateau with the suicidal line of flight the line of death the line of abolition but it was also it seemed to come up most in the postulates of linguistics which is counterintuitive for me but it's this question of the order word as a little death sentence a little judgment versus perhaps these words that pass that sort of make flight into an act of art and creation not necessarily fleeing from death but something like this so you got me thinking. You sent me down a couple of rabbit holes there, but uh, you know, if you have any words or thoughts about perhaps this this shift from talking about the model and, and experience of death, which we can talk about too in a second. But your your point about sort of death in, in a thousand plateaus, I, I was wondering what you may have been thinking about this when you wrote that footnote. It's hard to know what I was thinking about when I. Wrote I know that's that's a bad question. I'm sorry, yeah. but but yeah, that's a really great point. It does seem that in a thousand plateaus the concern about death very clearly moves from not that they disavow it or anything this model of death experience of death division that they use in anti-oedipus toward toward a, a political account of it right and i think mm -hmm. most of the places where death comes up it comes up in relation to fascism Right. So I think the shift uh, might best be characterized as a shift away from death as my relation to death or sort of redoing Heidegger's being towards death toward a discussion of death and politics. What are ways in which intensities or affects are captured or channeled? Which among those lead toward death, right? Toward their mm -hmm. own black holes which are creative, which we which lead away from that? And how can we create concepts in relation to that? And so 
in the micropolitics plateau, you know, they're creating very explicitly political and anthropological concepts in order to think about fascism. And again, not fascism as this sort of overwhelming totalitarian state, but fascism as a kind of war machine, which they take up in apparatus of capture. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then in postulates of linguistics, they're inventing linguistic categories or linguistic concepts in order to think about the politics of language. How is language used in a way that frees intensities or deterritorializes, and how is language used in a way that forecloses on the possibility of creation, right? Uh, that kills life, as it were. That's wonderful. And yeah, I think I'd have to think more about that, but that sounds right to me that that's what's, that that's how I would characterize that shift, or that's one way you could characterize that shift between the two books. That's really good. That's that's helpful. You know, it's it's less about the death drive and how it becomes silent under the regime of capitalism and how uh, it perhaps its absence or relative absence with respect to the two volumes could be kind of how you end the book where A Thousand Plateaus is more of the song of life, which mm-hmm. is what they think psychoanalysis should have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think, as you know, the two regimes interview or passage is very important where Anti-Oedipus is seen as this uh, ground-clearing move. Uh, You know, we need to sort of sweep the table clean of all of these uh, structures and obstacles to creation or to life. And then in A Thousand Plateaus, they just set out to paint something new on this uh, canvas that they've scraped clean. And yeah, it has a very different feel, and they are trying to, you know, if Anti-Oedipus is tuning the instruments, then Thousand Plateaus is playing the song. I love it. That's really a good way of looking at it. And it there is that destructive moment of schizoanalysis that they say, but it's not the only one. They talk about it as a as a curatage of the unconscious or something like this. So there is a scouring, a wiping clean of the slate, and uh, and I think that that's that's very helpful. I know that um, we're coming upon two hours, and so I don't necessarily want to. I did want to give you the chance to perhaps say because I mentioned at the very start of the episode, the role that perhaps Spinoza helps us to also mediate this antinomy or solve it to a certain extent, right? Because I do feel like that is one of those key figures. And I think that's why you begin the chapter, the part on Deleuze by bringing up how Spinoza, his notion of intensity, which you've been talking about, his notion of what a body can do in its increase or decrease of power in, in the ethics I'm wondering if perhaps Spinoza too is one of those figures that is key for declaring this antinomy between Hegel and Heidegger in terms of death as false. Spinoza was certainly key for me. And again, this is just a function of my sort of very strange history with Deleuze. My discovery was that my initial encounters with Deleuze were unfruitful. I I found him initially impenetrable. And I kept going back and, you know, it's just like, somehow I could sense there was something there, but I couldn't get access to it. And so I started instead trying to read his books on other philosophers. And that was a way that I found that I could 
see what he was saying about other philosophers and then see that he was also sort of making those claims himself. And so while the, you know, he has two books on Spinoza, the big expressionism book, but then the little one, Practical Philosophy, that was the one that sold me, right? That and the Nietzsche book finally sort of broke through where I could say, oh, now I kind of know what's going on here. I, I, I think I understand the moves he's trying to make. And the crucial contribution that I think Spinoza makes to this sort of dissolving the antinomy of death between mourning and melancholia is he's the one who provides the model of desire as productive rather than acquisitive. And it's fascinating in that respect that not only does he have this productive model of desire, but he also says exactly what one would expect him to say in relation to death, given this model of desire, right? He has this productive model of desire, and instead of saying, death is the most important thing, that's the thing we should be thinking about all the time, it's the very foundation of thought, or it's the engine of spirit, or, you know, uh, right. our very core, he says, the free person thinks about death least of all, right? And that's the commensurateness of those uh, two claims really sold me on the importance of Spinoza for Deleuze's analysis here and also for the coherence of um, thinking about death in this way, like from the basis of a productive account of desire. But, you know, there are many, many other things that could be said about Spinoza and Deleuze's reading of Spinoza. I just find it not just a, a good reading, but a salutary reading. Yeah, right? it makes me feel good. Yeah, I read Spinoza, and so I want to read more Spinoza. And I think uh, Coop, weren't you going to give a shout out? You yeah, forgot. I was. Uh, I forgot to say the episode is sponsored by Barrick Spinoza. <laughs> <laughs> he was going to say uh, shout out to because uh, last episode we had a <laughs> we had a shout out to Freud, and so this episode I think Spinoza deserves a shout out. And uh, you know, Coop has been saying I got to eat my vegetables and read Khan, and I I almost <laughs> feel like perhaps. Before reading Kant, if we're going to get rid of the transcendental, maybe we should go back and, and read Spinoza. Maybe that's what Coop might need if he claims to be a melancholic. Right? <laughs> right yeah. If, if it's a salutary reading, as you're suggesting, Brent, I think we should. Uh, what do you think? Do you think it would be appropriate to start with something like practical philosophy since Deleuze, it'd be two birds, one stone? It'd be more Deleuze uh, for Coop. I, and... <laughs> I think it's the best book ever written on Spinoza. I, oh, wow. Great. And I will say, it's really helpful to have a little Spinoza under your belt before going to Kant, because I think Spinoza is the real enemy in Kant. Interesting. Hume gets all the press, right? And <laughs> Hume represents this sort of skeptical pole that he's arguing against, but the dogmatic pole, that's the real danger for Kant, because if you take Spinoza seriously, then it looks like there's no room left for morality in Kant's view. And that's what he's most anxious uh, yeah. to try and save, right? I had to deny knowledge in order to make room for faith, right? That's mm -hmm. the, in the B introduction. <laughs> and I think what Kant ends up saying is, okay, Spinoza is right about everything, but, <laughs> but he's only right about 
appearances. He's not mm. thinking about things in themselves. And so if I can keep those separate, then I can, you know, give give appearances to Spinoza and we can get cause and effect back and all that stuff. But if I can save the things in themselves, then I can also get free will and morality and all of those kinds of things back. That's interesting. That almost makes me think of a, a kind of fictional account where Khan is making up things in, in themselves just to thwart Spinoza. On Kant's own telling, this is from his inaugural dissertation, he's just straightforwardly retrieving Plato, right? This distinction between the sensible and the intelligible right. that gets okay. lost in the modern period. He's retrieving that. and But I think the fundamental effect of that retrieval is he gets to affirm and circumscribe Spinoza in the same movement. That's actually really fascinating because you're right. Hume does get all the press, right? Even, you know, the whole famous awakening from his The Slumber of Reason or his something like this, right? Uh, yep. You know, and you know, what's interesting too is that what Hegel and Heidegger share and perhaps Kant to a certain extent, even if on the one hand, Antiedipus gives Kant some credit for making desire productive, but then immediately it's circumscribed back into the psychological, into the irrational, if you will, into the it's a sterile productivity, right? In terms of desire producing its representations, blah, blah, blah. No, so it's representation. freedom for Kant. Right. So I think that if Hegel and Heidegger share a tradition of lack that goes at least as far back to Plato, if not prior, then perhaps Spinoza is one of those. This is one of the reasons why Deleuze turns to Spinoza to mobilize a thinker who doesn't agree with this view of desire as as lack. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, Deleuze has this distinction between sort of the majority tradition in philosophy and the minority tradition. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the reasons Spinoza is in that minority tradition is this productive account of desire. You know, there are other reasons, too. You, know, you just like, mentioned one with Kant, right? <laughs> right. But, you know, also you get uh, kind of eminence out of Spinoza and affects yeah you get you get affects you get circulation of affects you can get a sort of historical critical genealogy out of spinoza because your your basic question for any encounter is what relation of affects have i entered into and why this particular configuration of affects and not some other mm -hmm. and how would i have to comport myself in order to arrange these affects differently he asks really pointed and interesting questions with Spinoza that you, know, you can't with other philosophers. You get a kind of so straightforwardly. You get a kind of materialism too, as well. I think. So, I think Spinoza is very amenable to materialism, but I think if I put on my early modern historian hat, I think Spinoza yes. is not a materialist. Okay, that's fair. He's a naturalist, but uh, for Spinoza. Thought and matter are ways of looking at nature. It's not that nature is reducible to matter. I was using perhaps materialist in a way in which I appreciate, for example, uh, the way he, in the, I'm trying to remember if it's the treatise, the theological political treatise, he gives readings of things that, you know, mountains of God is really very big mountains. There's a way of, it's not necessarily yeah. materialist in a strict sense, but there's a way of, of, Maybe that is the naturalism or something like this. Yeah, no, there's a really strong demythologizing yes. strain in Spinoza, especially in the TTP, that reads very contemporary and very modern. 
Um, yeah, that's, you know, in Deleuze's favorite Spinoza quote is there too, right? Why do people fight for their servitude as if it were their salvation? The problem of political philosophy. This is really great. And it also by juxtaposing Kant and Spinoza, it helps me to remember that ethics for the two thinkers would be quite different, right? I mean, mm. you know, ethics for Spinoza would be on this level that we've been talking about of, of affects, of, you know, relations of motion and speed, of, of sort of the questions of increasing of power and what I can be affected by and affect. Whereas I think for Kant, it would be something, and for Hegel and who knows for Heidegger, but it'd be something very different, I think. Yeah, I, I would, not would, I have characterized it this way in the past, that you don't get a morality out of Spinoza, you get an ethics, whereas in Kant, you get a morality. And the difference there is that morality is prescriptive. You can't get prescription out of Spinoza because no one knows what a body can do. Right? <laughs> you only get description, like, you know, what am I encountering right now? And what am I capable of in this encounter? Well, I have to experiment to figure that out. And I may discover that this is a composing encounter, and I may discover that it's a decomposing encounter. And so I note that and in the future, try and do better in my encounters. This is all very wonderful. I don't want to leave Coop out if you if you wanted to get to something, you know, I, I'm I get a little excited. Yeah, you were going to tell us about the Egyptians. <laughs> it could be just a symptom of me being sort of, uh, I don't know, I'll say visual artist, like in a very loose way. But I guess I think in pictures and I think one of the ways to conceive of the body without organs for me has, I don't know why it's been this persistent image of of the mummy and the, obviously like it's very literal, right? Because the organs are literally removed from the mummy, mm -hmm. but then you have the organs are preserved in the canopic jars. I think it's seven or what have you mm -hmm. alongside the body, which I think is kind of an interesting little metaphor, but ultimately more so I would you know, wanted to bring up with regards to the body without organs and death to maybe elaborate or discuss a bit about this, what they mean by zero intensity on mm -hmm. the body without organs. And just, I guess real quick, I can just say with regard to the Egyptians. So one aspect is that kind of mummy, you know, organs sort of dichotomy, but also like, I think the way that those like the libidinal investments of the ancient Egyptian society are directed, to, you know, everything flows through the body of the despot, there's a kind of communal salvation through the death and resurrection of the of that figure too of the despot, which is kind of interesting in terms of its parallels with something like Christianity. So those are kind of the ideas that I have, but I think more so if you would speak to perhaps this notion of zero intensity and its relation to death. I know so that's a big question. <laughs> no, but it, it allows us to at least say a few words about the model of death yeah. and the experience of death and put that in relation to perhaps a little bit what we were talking about with affects that may have helped to kind of set up the uh, the role of intensity and in affect and uh, becoming. Okay. Um, <laughs> the not, best not, for last, huh? <laughs> yeah, not, not quite sure I know where the best point of incursion is here, but. I'll just start talking and see what There happens. we go. Please do. <laughs> the talking comes first, right? Exactly. That's right. Right. The yeah. talking comes first. So, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I'm thinking really hard about something. <laughs> just start talking because that's the only way anything's going to happen. One of the interesting moves that Deleuze and Guattari make is they, they really end up de-emphasizing death with this uh, model of death and experience of death. 
And here's what I mean by that. For them, what is primary is desiring production, Mm -hmm. right? And that desiring production is intensive. And so because desiring production is intensive, it's going to always fall on some continuum between zero degree intensity and maximal intensity, right? So any sort of encounter, any sort of connection being made between two partial objects is not just going to be an encounter in a vacuum. It's always going to be an encounter at a certain degree of intensity. And that intensity is always going to be fluctuating and changing. And it's that shift in intensity that is the experience of death. Right. Right? So for Deleuze and Guattari, they really end up, how do I want to say this? They really take the piss out of death, right? Like (laughs) It's not this huge thing anymore. It's like, right now, this conversation has cycled through varying levels of intensity. And Mm -hmm. every time it does that, that's the experience of death for them. Because... The subject is a residuum, right? The subject is always that thing that afterward we'll think about like, oh, how did I come across in that discussion? That's all post hoc, right? Mm -hmm. That's all ex post facto stuff. That's not what's really going on. What's really going on is this landscape of shifting intensities. And every time one of those changes that's the experience of death for Delizmatari. And then, you know, the model of death is going to be this sort of picture of the whole thing, right? The expanse from zero degree to maximal expression or maximal intensity. And so the body without organs in that case becomes that limit on both ends, both the zero degree and the maximal degree, right? And so the body without organs isn't this new foundation that they're discovering underneath all this. They're just saying, look, anytime you have an intensive process, that intensive process will create its own limits with a both zero degree and a maximal degree. Mm -hmm. For reasons that aren't very helpful to anyone who will read us, we're going to steal our toes term body without organs, but that's what we're going to call it, right? What do we call that thing that desiring production creates prior to the organization and concretization of that desiring production into sort of inertial structures, for want of a better phrase? And I like that the image of the mummy alongside the organs is kind of like the whole alongside the parts, right? You know, there's there's something to that metaphor that helps to kind of visualize. And it is nice too, that this question of the, the body without organs as a paranoic machine that repels all of the organs, all the machines mm-hmm. that, that gets us towards zero intensity, which can threaten catatonia. If desire is, is turned into a, a goal or is stopped along the process, which is then where we get the catatonic schizophrenic clinical entity that they warn against you know but there's always as they say right it it works best by breaking down right so that that's that's the 
that's the experience, right? So I guess that's if we have model as model of death as a zero degree, the paranoic machine, if you will, but we also have the attraction and the whether it's the miraculating machine and at the limit, the celibate machine, we have these these uh phases of becomings. They'll talk about it later in terms of assemblages of desire, right? But I really liked it. I thought it was interesting that you say if Heidegger accepts the model of death is real. It's the experience of death then that has to be warded off. But on the other hand, if for Hegel, the experience of death is real, it's the model of death that seems to be foreclosed. And that is their perhaps way of trying to solve an antinomy within the ontology of desire as lack, perhaps. Right. right. No. And, and I think that's what Blanchot is so good uh, at showing in his uh, discussion of death from which they're drawing this distinction in the first place, right? That's, you know, for Blanchot, there's this sort of impersonal death beyond my death. And that's what Heidegger doesn't talk about, you know, quibble about whether he refuses to talk about it, but it would certainly cause trouble for his analysis if he did. Well, that's the interesting thing, right? Because for Heidegger, death is always Dasein, but always my death. Whereas Blanchot was talking about the impersonal own, right? The one dies or they die, however you want to translate it. And that would be Das Mann, which I don't think Heidegger can make room for because wouldn't that get us back into the everydayness and authenticity or right. or something like this? Yeah, it, it gets us back to meat sign, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it gets us to a communal aspect that he's trying to circumscribe. Mm hmm. But even then, I think, as you show, and that Blanchot's they die, one dies, isn't necessarily communal or personal. So there is this, I could see why that was the serendipitous moment that catalyzed how to deal with the antinomy. Right, yeah. That's at the end of the day where both Hegel and Heidegger go wrong as far as Deleuze is concerned is they want to talk about subjects. And Deleuze Batari want to talk about the pre-subjective. The subject is a residuum, right? That's the end result of the process, and it doesn't it doesn't ground the process. It's a result of the process. And at best, we could get to subject groups, but there are always these mortal formations. I'm always struck by how Guattari wants to inject the death drive not into the biological organism, as Freud relegates it to, but into institutions right. that for Guattari transversality has to be this injection of the death drive into formations that are always mortal, not these big institutions like whether we call it the military industrial complex or the French Communist Party or something that want to immortalize themselves and live on at the expense of, of actually confronting problems. Right. The way that capitalism does, right? That's this whole thing, <laughs> right? Uh, where the death instinct becomes injected into the pores of yeah. the created lack right that's it's the anti-production that's wedded to production which uh, you do a great reading of with um the romero film oh yeah that was i very much enjoyed that i wonder even like what do you think about this taylor with regard to like i mean i don't want to go down that road too far but i was just kind of curious you know symbolic exchange and death there because i feel like in their Baudrillard saying, you know, basically death is what's repressed by capitalism. And I think mm -hmm. it feels like that's, well, what would you say, Deleuze and Guattari? Or... It's the mortuary axiomatic uh, quote that Brent quotes, where it's the death instinct becomes appropriated by the repressive apparatus. 
And that's how it's injected throughout the pores. So there's, it's not necessarily the opposite of what Baudrillard said, right, but that, that's a way in which death becomes repressed because it, it suffuses everything, right? With that, and yeah. I think in that sense, yeah. Baudrillard maybe would, so, yeah. Baudrillard would definitely side with uh, with Hegel's right, yeah, historicizing yeah, sure. view of for sure. of the communal. In any case, I know we could we could keep this discussion going, and it, but at some point we have to go to uh, zero degree. Uh, <laughs> that's right, yeah. And so we have to inject a little death drive into the episode. Yeah. And so, Brent, I do want to give you the chance to have the last word and perhaps tell us what you're working on at the moment, maybe some classes you're teaching if you're not writing anything, whether or not you're going to perhaps take up the mantle of dismantling the transcendental into a book, you know, to really start a fire. Um, (laughs) It's not so much that I'm teaching anything new, but I did change the way I was teaching. Okay. Uh, So I've got a, a couple of freshman seminars that used to be just Spinoza. thought That's that was great. Uh, and I actually still really like that class, but I was starting to get some blowback on that. Uh, <laughs> I switched it up a little bit. And so we're reading Spinoza and Kant next to one another, but then we're reading Emma Goldman, Anarchism and Other Essays. And the topic of the class is freedom. Uh, oh, so excellent. Working through that. And then we have some sort of literary texts like Garden of the Forking Paths by Borges and Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Le Guin. And then for the Goldman, we're going to read Bartleby, which I it may be too long, but I think it's going to work really well. And then I'm teaching just the standard modern Western class, you know, the Descartes to Kant history class. But I I didn't just I just felt that it was too it was too white and too European and too male. Fair. Uh, and so I injected the class with women authors from the period like Elizabeth and Anne Conway, but also reading alongside these texts, which are written during a period of colonialism and the African slave trade and the rise of capitalism, reading contemporary authors commenting on those issues like uh, Sylvia Winter yeah, Sheila Mbembe and uh, David Graeber, and you know, and David Wingrove, the dawn of everything. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, uh, we'll see. I, I may <laughs> need to switch up the reading to make it more explicitly the politics, you know, because I still have this sort of metaphysics epistemology text from the period that we're looking at. But yeah, and in terms of things I've been working on. I have been working on Michel Serre yeah. almost nonstop for, I don't know, last five years. Really? Yeah. I think he's amazing. I think he has a really, I just wrote a paper on the transcendental in Serre. <laughs> um, Does it suffer the same fate? Are you, <laughs> are you uh, arguing no, against actually, it? Or? Serre has a really interesting reading in both Parasite and Five Senses. And uh, he, he comes very close to where I think Deleuze ends up and says, well, the transcendental just is circumstance. And, Interesting. And he's taking circumstance in its etymological sense, right? That which stands around. Right, uh, okay. This sort of chosen object in the center, right? The, the conditions for that object are its circumstances. And that's what the transcendental is. That's fabulous. Yeah, yeah, it is fabulous. So yeah, I would love to write uh, a book on Sare. I think that's probably where I'm headed next. But I just wrote a couple of articles 
one was on it was on uh, Guattari and uh, the clinic. Uh, actually. Okay. Um, Excellent. Yeah, it, it was uh, strange. I was asked by a actually a clinical practitioner who has a journal for mm-hmm. other clinical practitioners and says, "Hey, we're doing this special edition on Antiedipus, not just the book, but the concept Antiedipus." Yeah. yeah. Would you like to contribute? And I said, "Sure." And so I ended up writing a lot about Guattari and just sort of the project of Laborde and, you know, what exactly schizoanalysis is. And then I've written a couple of recent articles sort of on Deleuze and neoliberalism that'll be appearing in, you know, edited collections. And I guess um, I listened to your uh, talk with Henry uh, Summers Hall. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, great guy. Henry is editing a volume on Deleuze with Jeff Bell, and I'm going to write the Thousand Plateaus chapter for that. Excellent. So need to think about that a little bit. Excellent. I mean, it sounds like hopefully a little bit of what we discussed. I know we only touched a little bit on a Thousand Plateaus, but hopefully that that was a food for thought. And oh, yeah. know, it, so- it sounds like you've got your own volume of essays beyond the book on Sayre that you could collect. You know, I, I always think that that's important. <laughs> you know, seeing as I've mentioned this before, Dan Smith's one of my favorite authors on Deleuze. And I kind of begrudgingly accept the fact that the one book, besides his dissertation, he has is just his collected essays. So if it works for for Dan, I, you know, it can work for, uh, you know, for anyone else because it's, it's definitely well, a... No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and Dan may not be generalizable. He would definitely I won't speak for Dan, but he would probably push back. He he seems like a like a pretty humble, uh, humble guy, whether or not he deserves to be or should be. You know, it's a, no, I, I love Dan. Uh, he's amazing. Um, yeah. yeah. Any chance I get to hear him speak is uh, always a treat. I really had a good time talking to you today about these things. I appreciate your ability to riff and also to be open about things like the transcendental. Uh, you know, <laughs> those kind of unscripted moments are, um, you know, it may not, you know, you, you tried it out at a conference and I don't want you to necessarily let the other Delizians bully you into foreclosing on that idea. I think that you could, there's something there that merits maybe that's part of the book on Sarah that you could write right I mean if it's gonna be but I'm not trying to push you down that road (laughs) I I, I would love to see it I kind of agree with you that you're right eminence is uh wins out in the day and is much more important than the transcendental I think that that's a I would have been there backing (laughs) you up so that's good to hear so I what I would suggest you know once you maybe within a year or so, we'd love to come back because we could have obviously talked about more about Guattari and I would love to be able to talk to someone about Sayre on the show. And so I translated a, a tiny essay or a chapter of his from the origins of geometry. It was, oh, yeah. it was a great little chapter on um, the nonlinear history of math. There's all kinds of topics we could, uh, obviously more Spinoza, you know, and your reader's guide, the book on ethics and moral philosophy. So we would love to have you back in the future. And hopefully we won't scare you away from, from that prospect. <laughs> no, it's been a pleasure. I'm, I'd be happy to chat anytime. Excellent. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, easy, you know, and uh, again, in a small place like this, it's not like they're a bunch of Delusians <laughs> chat with or who will tolerate me talking about it for very long. That's our thing. And yeah. Uh, Trust me, I've got my own galaxy brained ideas that uh, even Henry was like, oh, gosh, you guys are coming at this from so many angles. I don't I don't know what to do. 
<laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and if you'd have been there to tell him, just start talking, the ideas <laughs> there will you come, go, right? right? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, Henry's, uh, Henry's very careful. So uh, <laughs> listen, we're going to let you enjoy the rest of your weekend. We appreciate your time and really appreciate you coming on the show. I will email you um, next Saturday or Sunday when the episode drops and, okay. uh, you know, keep teaching freshman uh, Spinoza, make them into good little dogmatists. Uh, no, just uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. And thank you so much again for joining us. Yeah, yeah. thanks, guys. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Thanks so much. And once again, thanks to Brett Atkins for joining us on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happier with Trooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins.